what we've learned is that any precept that any guru throws at you as being, you know, sort of the holy grail of nutrition is going to be wrong. And, you know, you have to basically piece it out for yourself to see what works for you. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. I am so pleased to bring to you today Dr. Robert Lustig. He is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California, and he has been a leading public health authority on the impact that sugar has on fueling the diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome epidemics. He is also the author of Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease, and his latest book, Metabolical. So you may be thinking, I eat healthy, I don't need to listen. Well, I would say that that is incorrect because metabolic syndrome is impacting over 90% of the population. Yes, that's 90% of the population. And as you can imagine, it is incredibly complex as to how we got to this health crisis. And so today, Dr. Lustig and I do our best to summarize the key points in his very data-intensive 400-plus page book. And he actually has 200 pages of references that you can find online. So let's dive right in. Dr. Lustig, thank you so much for joining the FemPower Health Podcast. I have to say... When I found you, I originally uh, came about it through discussions with some other experts I've interviewed before, and we were talking about sugar addiction. And so I was doing some research and trying to figure out who should I interview. And then I came across your book, and I read your book, and wow, you are like the expert based on all the research you've done, all the work that you've done in your career, the amount of people you've spoken to about so many things related to the root cause of the health issues in the country and in this world, and have so much data around all these questions that people are posting on social media about the one-liners about addiction and carbs and diets. I I have to say I prepared so much because it's like, how do we cover all this in such a short amount of time? So I will do my best. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how we're gonna cover all that. (laughs) I will do my best. It's a, it's, it's, it, it is. it's a boatload. Um, you know, the thing to, the thing to understand, Georgie, is that there are people in every single one of these uh, mm-hmm. buckets that you just mentioned, all the way from molecule to the planet. All right. It's my job to try to string those all together into some sort of cohesive whole. And, you know, and in order to do that, you sort of have to know a little bit about everything. I guess that's my superpower. So before we dive into all the great things in your book, why don't you give us your background and then we can dive right in. I'm a pediatric neuroendocrinologist. Now, what is that? It means um, I help children with the hormone problems that start in the brain. Turns out that, you know, the hypothalamus, the uh, base of the brain right over here at the uh, right under... Uh, the uh, brainstem, uh, a part of the brainstem, and right above the pituitary is the control of the seat of virtually all the hormonal uh, secretions of the body, and it is also the home of energy balance. And so when it gets damaged, all hell breaks loose. And so I'm a hypothalamus doctor, and I have been for 40-some-odd years. Now, I am clinically retired now. I uh, stopped seeing patients about six years ago, very specifically to focus on this nutritional-slash-health-slash-environmental crisis that we now find ourselves in. And so I've pretty much devoted my retirement to trying to you know, fix the problem you know, at, at, at the root cause. And so that's what I do. You, you said in your book that this book is both an act of my contrition to the public and my act of medical disobedience to the medical establishment. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit more about that? Because I think it's an important um, summary also of, of why it is so critical to have this conversation, but why it's also so darn hard to fix the problem. Well, you know, doctors are very... Um, provincial. And doctors are very dogmatic. And I know because I'm one. <laughs> and I, and I, I've watched this all throughout my career. Um, 
I guess I was sort of not really cut out to be a doctor, maybe. Maybe that was my, my mistake. And I realized it on the first day of medical school because um, we were having our white coat ceremony and one of the most uh, uh, important clinicians at Cornell University Medical College was uh, giving us, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the initiation address. His name was Dr. Martin Gardy, really wonderful man. And he said, and I've heard that other people have said this at, at their medical uh, indoctrina indoctrinations, 50% of what we teach you is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. Now, the rest of the students in my class probably listened to that and discarded it and said, no, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to learn how to be a doctor. You know, give me what I need. You know, give me the information. And I said, wait a second. If 50% of what we're going to be taught is wrong and they don't know which 50% it is, that means that I'm going to have to stay alert for the rest of my life because some of the things they're going to teach me are going to end up not being true and I'm going to have to undo it. And I have been acting that way ever since. And I have been looking for the mistakes. And um, unfortunately, I found a huge one. And it was right in my bailiwick. I mean, I went to college and majored in nutritional biochemistry. And then I went to med school and they beat it out of me and told me, you know, none of what I learned in college was important. And, you know, this is how we take care of patients, you know, and I went along with it because, you know, they're the gurus and none of my patients were getting better. And, you know, they were getting fatter and they were getting sicker. And these are kids, you know, and they were getting the diseases of adults. They were getting the diseases of aging. They were getting the diseases of alcohol. Type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease are the diseases of alcohol, but they don't drink alcohol. You know, clearly something's wrong here with the way we're dealing with this. And they say, oh, no, 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 just weight loss, weight loss. You know, they just have to lose weight. And if they don't lose weight, they're noncompliant. Well, you know, now we have an entire literature that has developed over the past 20 years that has just completely taken this whole concept apart. And now we have to rebuild it. And, you know, I just happen to be in a good place to be able to do that. And, you know, that's the story. One of the things that's really important and why this is, was an a, a, a interesting challenge to try to figure out how to put this interview together is... We are in this society, it's quick fix. Social media, it's headlines, the layout. So what I want everyone who's listening to understand is we will answer the questions that you have, the one-liners in social media. But I think it is important to share the context. And if anyone has questions, read Metabolical. It is basically the encyclopedia of the root cause of why we're sick. I appreciate your saying you know, um, unfortunately, the people who need that the most are the people who are least likely to read it. And that's, and that's a problem. I don't disagree. I get it. This is hard. But the me as, maybe if we just keep saying the messages, the right people will hear it and we will help solve the problem. And you have given beautiful, realistic examples of how to do that. So let's dive in. First, your book is about metabolic syndrome. I guess I always thought of metabolic syndrome as, oh, you know, it's really only for diabetics. Like that's, you know, and I don't have diabetes. I eat healthy. I don't have to worry about it. Like that is, and I read this book and I'm like, this is, no, <laughs> this is something every single right. one of us has to worry about. And so if I may share some data and then I'd love for you to expand. So 70% sure. of us take meds. Are we sick? Yes, 88% of us are metabolically ill. That's one. Another. Change that, change that to 93%. It's now 93. So that's scary. I based the 88% based on a paper that came out in 2019. I wrote my book in 2020. It appeared in 2021. And then last year in 2022, Tufts updated that number to 93%. So yeah, okay. it's moving fast. Okay. Um, increased rates of cancer, uh, leading factors of 50% of cancers are diet and smoking. We have an epidemic of obese six-month-olds, which you said earlier. 
American adult females, since this is a women's health podcast, um, I took that data, are eating 335 calories more per day. And we are going to discuss a calorie is not a calorie. And the it's your fault, you're fat is a misnomer. Thin people also have metabolic syndrome. That's the data, folks. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is that obesity is not the cause of metabolic disease. It is a marker for metabolic disease. I don't argue that. It is a marker, but it is not a cause. And the reason it's not a cause is because, number one, 20% of obese people are metabolically healthy, but 60% of normal weight people are metabolically ill. If 60% of normal weight people are metabolically ill, then how can it be about obesity? Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, and for this podcast, appropriately, polycystic ovarian disease, okay? And they get it at a normal weight. So if obesity is the cause, then how come all the normal weight people have it too? Now, it is true that the obese have a much higher prevalence of each of those diseases than do the normal weight population. I don't argue that. And that's why it's a marker. But a marker doesn't mean a cause. In fact, the same thing that's driving the diseases is driving the weight gain. So you could call the obesity an epiphenomenon rather than a primary causative factor. That's the way to uh, uh, appropriately describe it. It is an epiphenomenon. And I'm not saying that obesity is okay, all right? But if you're normal weight, you know, then, you know, then, then, then what's going on that makes you sick? So, you know, that's, that's the issue. There's so many people that I speak with, either the experts, patients about these chronic illnesses. And, you know, I've been speaking to a lot of gut health experts as well. And it just, Anecdotally, it, it just seems like even a lot of these chronic conditions, autoimmune diseases, and I'm talking beyond, you know, diabetes, et cetera, like so many of these, it's, it's, there seems to be this whole root in gut health. Well, gut health turns out to be extraordinarily important. The, the gut is a sewer. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. It is a sewer. And the gut's job is to keep all of the sewage in the gut and don't let it get into the bloodstream and allow the important things that are in the food ultimately to migrate across and get into the bloodstream. So you have a transport phenomenon, but you also have a barrier phenomenon. And both of those have to be working properly in order to have normal gut health. And it turns out both of those are under attack in different ways. So the transfer problem turns out to be basically a metabolism issue. You, if you're providing the wrong stuff for transport, guess what? You get sick. And that's what we've been doing. And we've been basically flooding our system, our gut, with a toxin, with a, you know, a metabolic toxin. And that toxin happens to be called fructose. Fructose is the sweet molecule in sugar. Now, how can something that grows on a tree or, you know, be, you know, or bush be toxic? And the answer is easy. <laughs> you know, uh, hemlock <laughs> grows on a tree. Okay. There are a lot of, you know, um, uh, uh, digitalis, you know, is toxic. You know, there are all sorts of things that are, um, that grow and are still toxic. All right. The point is that fructose, <clears throat> the sweet molecule in sugar, depletes ATP, the energy, uh, the chemical energy source inside cells, and it does it inside the intestinal cells. And so when your intestinal cells get depleted of energy, they don't work right. And when they don't work right, they let all the stuff in. And so the barrier is broached and it all ends up in the liver and then the liver has to metabolize it. And what it does is it turns that fructose into liver fat. So 
by breaching the barrier, you basically alter metabolism. So there is that, the, you know, the, the, the uh, breaching of the barrier because of ATP energetics. In addition, the gut has a physical barrier, and it's called the mucin layer. And it is a you know, layer of mucus, essentially, over the intestinal epithelial cells. So it basically protects the intestinal epithelial cells from the junk in the gut. Well, you have to feed the bacteria in your gut so that they will leave the mucin layer alone. When you don't feed your gut, your gut will feed on you. So the gut, the, the gut bacteria like mucin. They will eat the mucin right off the surface of the intestinal epithelial cells, denuding those cells, and then rendering them basically uh, uh, susceptible to all the toxins and the cytokines and all the other stuff that's there in the gut, in that sewer. And then finally, there is an immunological barrier. So there are cells throughout the entire intestine. In fact, there are more immune cells in the intestine than there are in the rest of the body put together. The intestine is an immunological barrier. We have these uh, areas called Peyer's patches where all the intestinal uh, you know, uh, immunological cells all congregate. And those cells tend to be t cells called Th17 cells, and they make a specific cytokine called interleukin-17 in order to keep things out. Well, turns out when you eat a normal diet with fiber, those Th17 cells are fine, and the IL-17 is fine. When you eat a ketogenic diet, <clears throat> those Th17 cells are fine, and that IL-17 is fine. Well, that's good, but that's a super high-fat diet, but the fat stays in the gut and does what it's supposed to. But if you add sugar, the Th17 cells disappear, the IL-17 goes down, and the barrier is broached. So when you switch from a high-fat diet to a cafeteria diet, which is a high-fat-slash-high-sugar diet, that's when all hell breaks loose and the barrier goes away. So if you alter those three barriers in your gut, the physical, the uh, biochemical, and the uh, immunological barrier, you know, all that's going to happen is all that sewage is going to end up in your bloodstream generating inflammation and you are off to the metabolic syndrome races. Yep. So in your book, to summarize that in layman's terms, it's protect the liver from fructose, glucose, omega-6, etc., by reducing these stressors. And other environmental obesogens and cadmium, and there are a bunch of things to protect the liver from. Yes, yes. and increase fiber. And then also feed the gut with fiber. The, the rules the rules are actually pretty easy when you act when you break it down mm -hmm. that way um, you know unfortunately you know putting the rules into practice is the hard part exactly and you know the premise of your book is it's not what's in the food it's what's been done to the food and and you know as you were talking about the the sugar I was thinking I'm not sure how many of us think interpreted this way this is not do you put sugar in your coffee this is, this is not just how many cookies do you eat. This is most of the food right. that is in the grocery has this full stop. 73% of all of the food in the grocery store is not food because it is ultra-processed food. Well, just because they called it ultra-processed food didn't make it food. So that's the big question here is, is ultra-processed food food? Now, you would say, well, ultra-processed food has calories and therefore it's food. Well, actually not. So what is the definition of food? It comes straight from the dictionary, okay? And I love this definition. It is 100% correct. Substrate that contributes to either the growth or burning of an organism. That is correct. Growth or burning. So if anything you put, you know, between your lips contributes to either growth or burning, then it is food. And I'm good with that. So the question is, is ultra-processed food, does it meet either of those two criteria? So let's take burning first. So the burning takes place in 
little organelles, little subcellular uh, organelles inside each of your cells called mitochondria. Mitochondria are the little energy burning factories that turn food into energy, and that energy we've already identified has a name, it's called ATP. So anything that generates ATP is food. So the question is, is sugar food? Turns out that molecule fructose actually inhibits ATP generation. Glucose stimulates it, but fructose inhibits it. It inhibits three separate enzymes that are necessary for mitochondria to do their job. It inhibits an enzyme called AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. It inhibits an enzyme called ACADL, which is necessary to break the fatty acids into two carbon fragments so that they can be burned. And it also generates uric acid, which inhibits an enzyme on the surface of the mitochondria called CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which regenerates carnitine, which is necessary as the shuttle mechanism to get the fatty acids inside the mitochondria to be able to burn in the first place. So the bottom line, the, the denouement of all of what I've just said is that fructose actually inhibits mitochondrial functioning and fructose inhibits ATP generation. Therefore, fructose inhibits burning. Now let's move to growth. So does ultra-processed food promote growth? Turns out it does the opposite. It inhibits growth. So my colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ernan, working at Hebrew University Jerusalem, she's the head of the Department of Nutrition there, she showed very clearly that ultra-processed food, particularly sugar, inhibits cortical bone growth, trabecular bone growth. You know, we've got a big problem with postmenopausal osteoporosis, don't we? Where do you think it's coming from? Coming from the ultra-processed food because it's inhibiting the ability of bones to actually lay down calcium and get hard or stay hard, okay? And so, in fact, the osteoporosis has been shown to be occurring even before peak bone accretion, which is supposed to occur at age 25, okay? Women, you know, at age 20, 21, already have reduced bone mass. And the reason is because of the food they ate. So you're not laying down calcium. You're not accreting bone. You're uh, uh, cortical and trabecular bone are actually inhibited. You can actually see the washed out appearance on x-ray and of course with DEXA scanning, et cetera. Um, so the, and, and also sugar actually hijacks growth in the form of cancer. So does it actually help growth? Actually, it inhibits growth or it hijacks growth, but it certainly doesn't promote growth. So if a substrate does not contribute to growth or burning, is it a food? In fact, ultra-processed food is not food. And this is why, and I love this in your book, you said many people think real food is snobbish. And I think you just gave a lot of information as to why it is not snobbish. It's only snobbish if you think it is. Right. You know, unfortunately, that's a cultural issue. And, you know, we have to ultimately, you know, sort of uh, dispel that notion you know, how do you do that? Well, you do it with a lot of education and it takes a long time, but ultimately generational shifts can occur. All right. We've seen generational shifts occur throughout our entire existence. Um, I like to bring up four, you know, generational cultural shifts that have occurred in the last 30 years. And I do in the, at the end of the book, here are four things that have changed in the last 30 years that we thought would never change. One, bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Two, smoking in public places. Three, drunk driving. Four, condoms in bathrooms. Yes. In 2011, a uh, public relations arm of the food industry called IFIC, the International Food Information Council, they publish a yearly report, and every year they ask the public a question, do a survey. And in 2011, the question was, what foodstuff or nutrient is most responsible for weight gain. And at that time, 11% of the population said refined carbohydrate and sugar. 42% of the population said 
a calorie is a calorie or I don't know. They asked the same exact question seven years later in 2018. Exactly the same way with the exact same phrasing. And this time, 33% of the public said refined carbohydrate and sugar. And the exact same number reduced saying a calorie is a calorie or I don't know. In other words, we trained those people who said a calorie is a calorie or I don't know to understand that refined carbohydrate and sugar is the driver of insulin and the driver of weight gain and the driver of chronic metabolic disease. There's a lot of debate on are carbs good or bad? Um, some say it's okay. Right. Some say they're evil. You know, there's intuitive eating. There's gluten-free, intermittent fasting, keto, vegan. I'm sure I'm missing the other 500. Um, so with this whole, like, here are the diets, how should we eat? Um, calorie is not a calorie. Like that's kind of all the messaging, but I assume the summary of what people need to know is a very concise <laughs> answer. So, well, <clears throat> well, indeed. And that's why I wrote metabolical is because I, you can boil all that stuff down into two precepts that work. Actually, it's really three precepts, and I'll get to why it was only two in the book in a minute. But protect the liver, feed the gut. All of those things that you just mentioned are all stuff that's out there in the zeitgeist that you know people are glomming onto at one thing or another. And the bottom line is, on any given patient, one of those might be true. Like for instance, gluten. Okay, look, I'm I'm gluten intolerant. Okay? And I didn't know I was gluten intolerant, but I was sick for five years not understanding how come my GI tract was giving me so much trouble when it hadn't been giving me trouble before, but it was. And I didn't understand. I went to my own gastroenterologist who did two separate uh, you know, colonoscopies and you know, drew all the labs for celiac disease and everything came back negative. And he told me, well, you know, I'm fine. And he gave me two separate doses of rifaximin, you know, which basically sterilizes the gut so you can start over. And that worked for about six months each time, but each time it came back. So I didn't know what was going on, but I was sick as hell and I was not happy. And then I went to a lecture uh, I was uh, it was a keynote uh, lecture at a meeting I went to, and it was given by the head of pediatric GI at the University of Chicago, a guy by the name of Dr. Stefano Guandalini, and he's the head of uh, Peds GI there, and he was one of the original celiac disease researchers, back in Italy, who figured out the whole TTGIGA, you know, how celiac disease actually worked and how to how to how to diagnose it and monitor it. He gave a talk, it was about celiac disease, and I know a lot about celiac disease because I took care of type 1 diabetics, and type 1 diabetics, you know, there's a huge overlap with celiac disease, so I knew about that. But then he, the second half of the talk was about this non-celiac gluten sensitivity that everyone says they have, and I have, <laughs> and I didn't know why. And he said, you know, it's not gluten, it's wheat. It turns out wheat is a complex organism. It's hexaploid, not diploid. It's got 700 antigens, 700 different proteins that you could become allergic to. Now, the two famous ones are glutenin and gliadin, which, of course, make up gluten. Those are the ones everyone's heard of. But it turns out there are 698 other proteins, and you could become allergic to any one of those. And your antibodies for gluten would not turn positive because that's not what you're allergic to. You're allergic to something else. You've developed an antibody response to one of the other 698 proteins. And it's because there are 698 of them, there's no easy test for them. He said, but we can tell because we can take white blood cells from people who suffer from this and we can put them in the dish. And when we throw gluten on them, they do nothing. But when we throw wheat on them, they go nuts. They go bonkers in the dish. We can throw rye or barley on them, which have gluten in them, and they do nothing. It's only wheat, and it's not gluten. So therefore, cut the wheat. So, you know, I listened to that, and I said, okay. So I did, and you know what? Within a month, I was completely back to normal. Now, that's just me. But 
I suppose there are probably a few other people in this world who have the same issue and could probably uh, you know, benefit from the same uh, information. But that doesn't mean everybody is gluten intolerant and it doesn't mean everybody has to stay away from gluten. It just means that the people who have symptoms do. So what we've learned is that one size does not fit all. What we've learned is that any precept that any guru throws at you as being, you know, sort of the, the holy grail of nutrition is going to be wrong, okay? And, you know, you have to basically piece it out for yourself to see what works for you. And so that's what I try to do in Metabolical is give people the information to be able right. to do that. But the precepts are protect the liver and feed the gut. When you do that, you will be healthy. And any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And the one food that I can tell you does neither is sugar. Let's, let's bring this to practicality, right? Because, you know, this is an ideal state and, and you talk about it in the book. You know, I've had my, my own experiences with this um, is, you know, it's one thing to be educated about something, but we live in a society where we're busy. We um, live in a society where the food that's bad for us is very easily available. And then there's yep. the availability of funds. Because I agree with you from a big picture perspective, being sick is more costly than eating healthy now, but unless someone feels the pain, like I see this in women's health. So examples, like I found with women, until women are infertile or struggling with severe pain, they're not going. I have friends who are in their 40s who haven't had time to get breast cancer screening. I have friends who have health issues that are caught they, they have pain for and are so overwhelmed they don't know where to begin so this is this is the the reality that we are facing you know the problem is number one insurance won't cover this kind of stuff and number two most doctors are not right. trained in this stuff i mean you know only 28 percent of medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum and those that do the number of hours, the contact hours, the median is 19.6 contact hours. Now, when you consider that a medical education is 6,000 contact hours, for 19.6 contact hours to solve 75% of the healthcare problems in, our, uh, in medicine, okay, you know, sort of just doesn't add up. We are not taught in medical school about nutrition. And the reason is because Big Pharma underwrites 80% of medical education. So why would you expect them to be okay with us learning nutrition? Yeah. No, I, I mean, the stories I'm hearing from all aspects of medical training, like even I just interviewed a, um, a woman who is a urologist, and she was telling me how OB and GYN used to be separate tracks. Now they're merged. And so they're getting half the education because it's the same amount of hours of school covering two sets of content. So, Well, you know, we, we, we in endocrinology, you know, had split diabetes and endocrinology up separately in, you know, for years, there were um, uh, endocrine programs around the country that did not do diabetes. And there were diabetes programs that did not do endocrinology. You know, and the good news is now that that's sort of gone right. by the wayside. But, you know, my, my own program, uh, University of California, San Francisco, um, until 1994, diabetes, if, if a patient had diabetes, we told them uh, to call somebody else. Okay. So back to what we can do. Okay. Ultimately, as you, as we talked about before, this all starts in the gut. And when your gut is inflamed, proteins in your food will make it across into the bloodstream. The immune cells who are patrolling all the time will never have seen these proteins before because normally they didn't get across the gut and they will consider these foreign 
And so they will then generate antibodies against these proteins because they consider them foreign. And then those uh, antibodies can attack things that look like those proteins, and sometimes those things are cells. And that's one of the reasons why people who eat ultra-processed food have a much higher incidence of various autoimmune diseases, whether it be diabetes, or whether it be lupus erythematosus, or whether it be uh, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, or uh, numerous other diseases, uh, thyroid, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Bottom line is that autoimmunity is going up throughout the entire population. It's particularly going up in women in part because estrogen is an immune uh, stimulator. Androgen is an immune suppressant. Uh, it's one reason why males get less uh, autoimmune, autoimmune problems than females do. But you have to supply the antigen to make those um, T cells go crazy. And it's, they're all coming from the gut. Fix the gut and you'll fix your autoimmunity. Another thing that we've learned, which is really, really important in terms of this, you can actually improve various autoimmune diseases by changing your diet. An example, there's a disease called ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, it is an autoimmune disease. It also has an HLA correlate, uh, HLA-B27. Um, so we know that the immune system is broken in this phenomenon, and you get all sorts of problems with your spinal cord and your, uh, your, uh, your bones, etc. And it's very painful. Turns out that HLA, uh, sorry, ankylosing spondylitis, when you look at the antibodies that are doing the attacking, they also attack a gut bacterium called Klebsiella. Now, Klebsiella is a normal denizen of your intestine. It belongs there. But Klebsiella is making one of the enzymes that help you break down food. It is making an enzyme called alpha-1,6-glucosidase. That's something that makes, helps you digest carbohydrate. But specifically, the bread, rice, pasta, potatoes carbohydrate, amylopectin. So there are two different kinds of carbohydrate. You're probably familiar with this. One called amylose, which is what's in beans and lentils and brown things for the most part. And it is a string of carbohydrates, and the string of uh, glucoses are all bound together by what are called alpha-1,4 linkages. Well, the enzyme that breaks those linkages, we make. That's in our own intestine, alpha-1,4-glucosidase. By the way, that's what's in Bino. That's why, you know, you take Bino with your beans in order to stop farting <laughs> because you don't have enough alpha-1,4-glucosidase, so you need a supplement. The other kind of carbohydrate, amylopectin, is what bread, rice, pasta, potatoes are. They look more like a tree than a string. They have numerous branch points. And each one of those branch points is the alpha-1,6 linkage. Well, it turns out that alpha-1,6 glucosidase does not come from us. It comes from the Klebsiella. The Klebsiella donates it to us so that we can digest the food that we eat. Well, that means that when you eat bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, you are feeding the Klebsiella. So you don't want to feed the Klebsiella because that's what the autoimmune uh, phenomenon is directed against. You just happen to have, a, you know, cells that l look like it, you know, in your, in your bone. So if you cut back your carbohydrate consumption, you can actually make your ankylosing spondylitis better by preventing the Klebsiella from getting what it needs. And so you can actually mitigate some of your own symptoms by eating food properly. And that's not the only disease where that's the case. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, can all be made better by changing your food. I am not surprised. A question for you back to fiber. You mentioned in there, smoothies are bad, the Vitamixes, all this stuff. Because I make a smoothie that I don't do juicing, but here's my smoothie and I love it. And I was like, when I read that, I'm like, I need to ask him. So it is, I put, it's romaine lettuce, spinach, water, an apple, a pear, banana, and lemon juice, and celery. 
and I just blend it. I don't do Vitamix because that's like, what, $500? I'm not doing that. I got the cheap one, the Ninja, and I blend it. It's all still there. I'm, I'm like gnawing on the veggies and fruits, gnawing slash drinking it. So did I mess that up and I should just eat each of those individually? Preferably, yes. Um, now, so this, it's a little complicated. It's okay. two issues in one. The first is what's in your smoothie. So, you know, you, you don't have a lot of high fructose fruits in your smoothie. There's not a lot of fructose in bananas. There's not a lot of fructose in apples. Uh, the fruits that are highest in fructose are things like pineapple and... Um, watermelon? Is watermelon one of them? Watermelon. Yeah, watermelon has a fair amount, et cetera. Okay. And those tend not to go in smoothies. That's, so, so you're reducing the substrate, number one. Okay. So green smoothies are okay. And the reason green smoothies are okay is because there's not much fructose in the smoothie to start with. When you put all of these fruits into the blender, into the Ninja, into the Vitamix, into the Breville or whatever, you know, version, Blendjet or whatever you want to, you know, make it in, what you're doing is you are shearing the insoluble fiber. So the insoluble fiber is like a fishnet. It's like a lattice work. What you're doing is you're cutting holes in the fishnet. Imagine you're on a fishing trawler out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and the goal is to catch fish. And so you've got this big fishnet trailing behind the boat. Okay, great. What if, okay, you cut holes, you took a scissor and you cut holes in the fishnet. The more holes you cut, the less fish you're gonna catch, right? Yes. I mean, and if you cut them all up, you know, basically you're not right. going to catch any fish. Same things going on in your intestine. So the insoluble fiber, the cellulose, the stringy stuff in celery, okay, the cardboard of your food, if you will, okay, because that cardboard is cellulose. Um, what it's doing is it's setting up a lattice work inside your intestine. And then the soluble fiber, the pectins, the inulin, the stuff that holds jelly together, okay, which is also in the fruit, are plugging the holes in that lattice work. And so together, the soluble and insoluble fiber, by forming this matrix, by forming this fishnet with basically plugs in all the holes, are forming a secondary barrier on the inside of your intestine. And what that's doing is that's reducing the rate of absorption of glucose, fructose, sucrose, simple starches, rendering them unavailable for early absorption. And therefore, your glucose rise will be lower. Your fructose rise will be lower. Your insulin rise will be lower. All right? So you will not generate as much uh, weight gain because your insulin didn't go up very high because the glucose and the fructose and the sucrose and the simple starches are still in the intestine. They haven't reached your bloodstream yet because of the barrier. And because you didn't absorb them early, then all of those things go further down the intestine to the second part of the intestine called the jejunum, from the duodenum to the jejunum. And what's in the jejunum that's not in the duodenum? The bacteria, the microbiome, the gut uh, uh, flora. And they will then chew up all that glucose, fructose, sucrose, simple starches for their own purposes instead of for yours. So even though you consumed them, you didn't get them because you didn't absorb them because the fiber prevented the absorption. So even though it registered as a calorie at your lips, it doesn't register as a calorie at your bloodstream because your microbiome got it instead. But you had to delay the absorption in order to be able to do that. And so the fiber and the integrity of that fiber is essential for being able to uh, take advantage of this, you know, physical chemistry and, you know, um, uh, mechanical uh, phenomenon, this barrier. If you put the fruit into the you know, Breville or the, or, you know, the Ninja or whatever it is, your, your magic bullet or whatever you're using. Okay. What you're doing is you're destroying that lattice work and then your intestine will absorb it and you will still get the glycemic and the insulinemic response. And so you're actually not getting what you want out of it.
Okay, well, <laughs> I'm changing my breakfast, I guess. <laughs> no, if you're eating, if you're drinking a green smoothie with no fruit in it, then it doesn't matter because there's no substrate to worry about. So um, there are so many questions and I know you have a hard stop. So can I just have you comment on weight loss drugs, please? So every, look, everybody wants the pill. Okay. The whole world wants the pill. I mean, we all think that that's what medicine's about. Medicine is prescriptions and procedures. You know, everyone wants the pill. No one wants to change their behavior. Everyone wants the pill. And we've seen this, you know, for now a hundred years in, in, in America, you know, it's, it's all about the medicine. I'm here to tell you there is no medicine for this. Now, it is true that Ozempic, Wagovi, uh, Manjaro, you know, the, the new GLP-1 analogs do promote weight loss. They do, okay? In most studies, about 16% of excess weight, which is, you know, sizable and significant and, you know, potentially valuable to certain patients. Okay, unfortunately, the people who are getting the Ozempic and the Wagovi and the Manjaro are all in Hollywood who don't need it, but, you know, the, and the people who do need it can't even get it. So that's, oh. you know, that's a, a social issue that we have to deal with. But the question is, okay, you're losing weight. You're losing 16%. What kind of weight are you losing? You are losing both fat and muscle equally. That's what starvation does. The reason these medicines work is because they go to your brain, they go to the brain stem, and they tell the brain you've eaten. It's like turning up the volume on your radio, okay? When you eat regularly, you get, you know, just a little bit of volume or a little bit of static, and when you give these medicines, you're getting a bigger volume, and so your brain can hear it. And so you eat less. That is true. And in fact, the side effects of the medicines are nausea, vomiting, GI distress, ultimately, you know, in some cases, pancreatitis, all the things that happen, okay, when you're starving. <laughs> these, are the, these, these symptoms are basically, you know, what happens when you're starving. So, you know, when you eat, you feel lousy, all right? So, you're losing fat and you're losing muscle. Now, that will get you into a bathing suit. But the question is, is losing muscle what you really want to do? And the answer is, we now know that losing muscle is one of the things that kills you quicker. When you're, when you, especially when you're in, old, you know, in, in the you know, uh, later stages of life. Okay? The goal is pr uh, protect the muscle, protect the protein. Don't lose the muscle. Increase the muscle mass because you will live longer. That's one of the you know, uh, keys to longevity is preserve your mus muscle uh, mass. And you know, these medicines are not doing that. And you know, the, the big issue is they don't, you know, as soon as you stop them, you know, all the weight comes back. And they cost $1,300 a month. So if everyone in America who qualified for one of these drugs actually got it, that would be $2.1 trillion to the healthcare system. Currently, we're spending $4.1 trillion. So that is a 50% increase in healthcare expenses. We are right now at 20% of GDP on healthcare. This would then raise that to 30% of GDP on healthcare. Whereas if you just cut the sugar in your diet, down to what the USDA actually said was the upper limit, we could lose as much weight or more and improve liver fat and improve insulin sensitivity by 77%, and we would save $3.9 trillion a year. So which would you rather do, spend $2.1 trillion or save $3.9 trillion? You just have to fix the food. Wow. So in the book, and I don't even know if there's a, a closing statement we need. I'm still going to invite you to give one, but I just want to address in the book, you have tips on how to shop, suggestions for what industry, the government, all, all of the folks could do to fix this problem for all of us. Um, they're all practical considering women and clinicians listen to this episode. I'm going to skip that part, but it's in there. 
but I, I think at the high level, you've, you've given the tip, which is really being mindful, trying to shop the aisles and eat real food. Eat real food are the three words everybody needs to, you know, basically commit to memory. Eat real food. Now, some people still don't know what real food is. They think Cheetos is real food. That's a problem. <laughs> if you think Cheetos is food, you're sunk. It, it's just that simple. Now, the question is, what is real food? I will tell you that metabolical does not define real food. And the reason is because I had already written a book called Fat Chance that did. And you're not allowed to plagiarize <laughs> yourself. So I very specifically did not repeat everything that was in Fat Chance into Metabolical. Plus, Metabolical is already 416 pages. So there was no point in going okay. over it again. However, I have received hate mail from people saying, you know, you told us eat real food and you didn't tell us what that is. Well, actually, I did, just not in not Thank in you for, for saying that, because I, I did kind of walk away. I'm like, I, I have a good idea, because I've been attempting all this for 13 years, but I still learned a lot. So fat chance is on my list next. But I will say for those reading Metabolical. So I, I apologize for not re, no. know, being redundant. <laughs> you know, in, 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 in medical journals, you're, you're so not funny. allowed. Um, I learned so much. It was the most intense 480-something pages. I, I mean... Wow. I had to like walk away because there's so much information and then I would come back to it, but it was incredible. So thank you for making time. Thank you for your dedication. Well, thank you so much, Georgie. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com. Drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.